Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadika. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program, and on Wednesdays we come together for meditation to encourage, support, and motivate each other in our meditation practice. So I'd like to welcome all of you to our group learning program and our meditation session today. I'm going to be guiding you in breathing mindfulness meditation, which is the top priority of meditation that the Buddha taught and that he practiced as part of his life practice in getting to enlightenment. He talks multiple times in his teachings about how this was really significant for him in order to get to enlightenment and train the mind to get to enlightenment. And that's because it addresses the primary problem that is causing discontentedness, is craving, desire, attachment. And this is the meditation that is used in order to work at eliminating craving, desire, attachment, the cause of discontentedness. So I'd like to welcome all of you to our class today. After meditation, I'll be opening up to any questions that you guys might have about the path to enlightenment or anything that you're challenged with in your practice that you need help with. So this will be a great opportunity not only to encourage, support, and motivate each other in your practice, but also to be able to get any questions asked and answered for developing and progressing along the path. This meditation that I'm going to share with you guys and that we've been doing in this program for quite a bit is I'm going to just help you ease into meditation and then I'm going to help you focus on the breath where the breath is the object that the mind is focusing on. The sound of the breath or the sensation of air coming into the nose. Whenever the mind moves off the breath, you would like to be able to observe that, that it's happened, and then cut it off and let it go and come back to the breath. You're not interested in observing the thoughts, judging the thoughts, analyzing them or labeling them or anything like this. Just wherever you observe that the mind is off the breath, you just cut that off, let it go and come back to the breath. You're not actually trying to eliminate the thoughts. You're just actually arising the wholesome qualities of mindfulness or awareness of mind and concentration or being able to focus on a single object like the breath. And you're eliminating craving, desire, attachment, training the mind to easily let go. Because what the unenlightened mind does is it has craving, desire, attachment, where it has mental longing and strong eagerness. It's clinging, it's holding on, it's craving permanence. So what you're doing is when the mind moves off the breath, you're training it to let go and come back to the breath. And you do this over repeated sessions, and then you get better and better at training the mind to let go. So that in daily life, when you see something that is disagreeable or you hear something or something else is coming through the senses, that the mind is becoming discontent, either 
conditioned pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or neither painful nor pleasant, you can easily let that go and then just move on and not be affected by it with discontentedness. So that's what this meditation is doing, is training the mind to have awareness of mind or mindfulness, to have concentration or be able to focus on a single object, and to eliminate craving, desire, attachment to easily be able to let go so that you can bring the mind back to the breath and then use these same qualities in daily life that you're going to need awareness of mind, you're going to need concentration, and you're going to need to be able to let go and have the mind easily let go in daily life. So we're not actually trying to eliminate the thoughts. This is one of the misunderstandings that sometimes happens with breathing mindfulness meditation is that because we're cutting off the thoughts and letting them go, sometimes a student might think that the goal is to eliminate the thoughts. But as long as you're alive, you're going to have thoughts. The difference between someone who's just starting to meditate versus someone who's been meditating for a consistent long-term period is that as you meditate more and more over a consistent long-term period, there'll be these long gaps of peacefulness and quietness or stillness in the mind, where when you've accumulated enough benefits of training, instead of being bombarded with thoughts during meditation, you'll have these long periods of quietness or stillness, as the Buddha talks about, and then there'll be a thought. So you'll have this peacefulness, this calmness, this serenity, this contentedness and joy, maybe for a few minutes or even maybe five or 10 minutes, and then there'll be a thought. But the difference is that you'll be able to recognize that thought right away that it's happened, and then you'll be able to easily let that go and bring the mind back to the breath. Where when you first start with this meditation, oftentimes students are just bombarded with thoughts, just thought after thought after thought. So you need to accumulate enough benefits of doing this that you end up getting to the point where you get these longer and longer periods of quietness in the mind. So I'm going to be guiding you guys in this as we go in the class. And then what you would like to do is build up your practice to two to three meditation sessions a day for 30 minutes or more per session. This is what's going to produce the best results for you where you can accumulate enough benefits and you'll see that the mind will get quieted and stilled not only in meditation but outside of meditation as well. Because in daily life, if you're being bombarded with thoughts, it makes it very difficult and very challenging for you to conduct daily life. You'll be in a conversation with one person, but the mind's over here thinking about 500 other things. And then it's very difficult for you in your personal professional relationships or performing any particular task. So by doing these meditation, you're training the mind, you're honing it, you're bringing it to the middle so that it can perform optimally. So it's just like a professional athlete that a professional athlete goes into the gym and trains in one way. And then when they go out in their sport, they're going to perform their sport to the best of their ability. The same thing is we're training our mind in meditation to cut off all thoughts so that the mind can get used to having mindfulness, concentration, and let go of thoughts. But then in daily life, then you're just cutting off the unwholesome thoughts. In daily life, if a wholesome thought comes to mind, it's like, oh, what is that? Oh, and you follow that and you perhaps think about it, reflect on it, maybe make some plans for it. But if any unwholesome thoughts come to mind in daily life, you cut those off and let them go. So in meditation, we're cutting off all thoughts. Again, there's still going to be thoughts but we're training the mind to bring the mind back so that we can easily let go. And then in daily life, 
we're only cutting off the unwholesome thoughts and we're allowing the wholesome thoughts to permeate in the mind and perhaps you take action on them, perhaps you maybe think about them for a bit longer or what have you. So before we actually do our meditation, let me just pause, see if you guys have any questions about meditation itself and anything that I just shared so that that way you can get more benefit out of the meditation session itself. And then after we handle those questions and do our meditation, we'll open up to any questions and all questions that you guys have related to meditation or any other aspect of this path. The way that you ask questions is put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Uh, it does not appear that we have any questions at this time, sir. All right. Well, let's go ahead and move right into our meditation session then. So I'd like to invite all of you to go ahead and take a meditation position, whether that's seated, lying, or standing. These are usually best for online learning. Walking, we don't usually do too much with online learning. But if you like to take a seated position, this is usually kind of a primary type of position that we use for training. You can either be on the floor or you can be in a chair. If you're on the floor, you might decide to put some cushions under your rear to get your rear up in the air. That takes the angle off of your hips, knees, and ankles so that you can sit more comfortably. You're not interested in being luxurious, but you're also not interested in being painful either. That would be the two opposite sides of the spectrum. You'd like to be in the middle where the body is comfortable. Because the mind is the boss, the body's the employee, we'd like to make the employee comfortable so that we can go see the boss and train the boss, the mind. So you can be on the floor with that cushion under your rear. You might decide to put your hands and arms in your lap, your right hand over your left with your thumbs together, and then put that into your lap. If you're in a chair, you might just decide to sit comfortably with your feet flat on the floor or maybe cross at the ankles. It's up to you. It's not about everybody doing it exactly the same. And once again, with your right hand over your left and your thumbs together, and then you put that in your lap. But there's also other options with this. You can put your palms on your thighs, your palms on your knees. You could put your palms up. You could put your arms on the armrest of a chair. Essentially, your lower body and your hands and arms should be completely relaxed with no muscles engaged whatsoever. The upper body is a bit different. Here, you would like your upper body to be erect. This keeps the mind attentive and alert during the meditation. If you were real slouched, the mind would have a tendency to be complacent and not be actively trained during the meditation. Or if you were real rigid and uptight, the mind would kind of be the same way. It would be kind of uptight. So once again, you'd like to be in the middle where the body is erect to keep the mind attentive and alert. Because during the meditation, this is a dedicated, active, independent training session where we're either eliminating unwholesome qualities of mind or arising wholesome qualities. This is what we're doing in meditation. It's not a time to just zone out and do nothing. It's not a time to just contemplate your list of to-do items or things like this. So as you are training the mind this way, you're focusing on the breath. And by focusing on the breath, you're then able to train the mind to come into the present moment and be sure that you're eliminating the craving desire attachment and you're arising the mindfulness and the concentration. I will go ahead and get us started with meditation. All right, so if you guys would like to take your meditation position either sitting on the floor or sitting in a chair and then 
again, you have your lower body comfortable, your hands and arms comfortable, and your upper body erect. I'm going to guide us with the breath, and then we'll do some chanting. Then I'll be back with some more guidance. So if you're in the meditation position, if you'd like to just breathe in through the nose, starting to establish your breath here. Just breathing in gradually through the nose. And then wherever you get to your exhale, just breathe out gradually through the nose. Here, you're not really focusing the mind yet. You're just establishing the breath of breathing in gradually through the nose, experiencing the full breath, having a nice natural breath. And then whenever you get to it, take a nice gradual exhale through the nose. You can hang out here and just work on establishing the breath or you can join along in the chants and chant along. And then after the chants, I'll be back with some more guidance. Sati Sata Tawa 
मनुसना भोतो भगवती You should be breathing in gradually through the nose and exhaling through the nose. Here you're just establishing the breath, getting a nice natural inhale and an exhale. Your breath isn't going to match up to the guidance that I'm providing. So wherever you get to the next inhale, just take a nice gradual breath, breathing in. And then whenever you get to the next exhale, wherever that is, just breathe out gradually through the nose. This is your practice. I'm just here to provide guidance. Once you have the breath well established, next, you'd like to start fixating the mind on the sound of the breath coming into the nose or the sensation of air moving over the skin into the nose. The breath is the present moment. Fixate the mind on the breath, the present moment. Breathing in. In, out. Breathing in. In, out. With the mind fixated on the breath, Whenever the mind moves off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. No need to judge the thought. No need to label it. No need to analyze it or even try to figure out where it's coming from. Just wherever you observe that the mind is off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath the present moment. Breathing in. In, out. Breathing in. In, out. I'm going to be quiet now and let you guys do this work of focusing on the breath. Whenever the mind is off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. You have nowhere to go. 
There's nothing to do. No one needs you right now. Just focus on the breath. Breathing in. In, out.
Just gradually come back and we're going to open things up to any questions that you guys might have. So remember the way to ask questions is put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom in the comment section. The moderators will see that and be sure your question gets asked. Or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions that you like. You're welcome to ask questions about meditation or the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, how to eliminate fears, the Three Poisons, the Natural Law of Gamma, any of these teachings that we've been teaching throughout the entire program, you're welcome to ask any of those questions and even things that you're seeing other places. If you're curious, you know, why I teach things one way and you're seeing it being taught in another place, another way, you're welcome to even ask those kind of questions. So I'll just turn things over to all of you guys for any questions that you might have. Yes, sir. Uh, Tony has his hand raised. Let's go to him for his question, please. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm just wondering with discomfort, I, I 
maybe last night I slept wrong and my, my neck's a little bit so, uh, tender. So when, when the body experiences uh, discomfort when meditating, uh, what's your teachings on that, sir? If the body is uncomfortable during meditation and you'd like to move the body into a position where it can be comfortable because you're not interested in just sitting there in pain. And then, like I see you're in your car today, so you don't really have too many options other than sitting. But maybe if you were at home or somewhere else, maybe at a temple or something like that, you'd be able to do lying position or standing position or walking position. This is one of the reasons why the Buddha gave us four positions to meditate in because one position isn't going to be comfortable all the time. That would be permanent if it was. So whenever you're experiencing any discomfort, try to move the body and adjust it to get comfortable. If not, change to another position, and you'll probably be able to find something that's comfortable for you. And ultimately, if even all of those positions aren't comfortable, you can always postpone uh, meditation for a couple of hours, right? There's no need to force yourself to meditate right now. So you always have these different options available to you. Thank you, sir. You're very welcome. Um, and I think there are a couple of questions on YouTube. Let's go to Rick for those, sir. It's possible I'm on the wrong page because I'm not seeing any uh, any questions. Okay, oh, I can read them. I might be on the wrong, I might be on the wrong uh, link. I'm sorry. Okay, that. that's okay. I can read them, sir. Uh, Paul Rishit says, Venerable teacher, what should a person do if during meditation the legs become numb? Since the legs went numb, it felt uncomfortable from that moment to continue. Yeah, this is actually the same answer I just gave Tony, that wherever you feel any discomfort, whether it's pain or numbness or things like this, you can just adjust your body position. Oftentimes, if you're sitting on the floor, getting a cushion under your rear to lessen that angle at the hips, knees and ankles will bring the feeling back to the legs. Or if your legs are too tightly crossed, you can kind of loosen them up a little bit. Or you can even stack them one on top of the other. Oftentimes, people are taught to actually cross the legs. If you saw me meditate on the floor, I actually don't cross the legs because there's an impediment of the circulation. I will usually put one leg in front of the other or stack them on top of each other. This gives the circulation in the lower body. But if those things don't work, then you just switch positions to lying, standing, or walking. I think that that answers the uh, follow-up question that he had, sir. Uh, he says, since I got numbness in my legs, I do walking meditation more often than I do sitting meditation in my daily practice. Is this okay? Yeah, this is fine. There's going to probably be one or two positions for each practitioner that's kind of like your go-to position, but just don't allow the mind to get attached to that because you're gonna need these other positions. So if you are noticing that the mind tends to do walking meditation a lot, mix it up every now and again. Do a lying meditation, do a standing meditation, do a seated position and things like this, just to kind of mix it up to make sure the mind's not getting attached to any one particular position. And then also change locations. You know, if you're typically meditating in your house, move to outside, move to a park, go to a temple, try to introduce some impermanence. That's the way to ensure that the mind isn't getting attached, is that move things around, introduce some impermanence into your meditation practice. And this would be after you've been meditating, you know, maybe four or six, eight weeks. And I know Parikshit has been meditating for longer than that. So as you are building up your practice and you see that it's well-established, 
don't allow the mind to get attached and move it around by introducing this impermanence then you'll build up to the point where you can meditate anywhere at any time because all you need is the body the mind and the breath those are the only three things that you need and if you train the mind that you can be just as peaceful in meditation at home as you can in the park as you can at the temple as you can you know just sitting on the side of the road with traffic going by or something like that then when the mind gets used to this then you realize wow i can meditate anywhere at any time because all I need is the body, the mind, and the breath, and I've got those three things with me all the time until the end of this life. And there you can see that you can build a really stable, steady meditation practice. And remember that quote that the Buddha says is, a pot without a stand is easy to tip over. So the pot is the mind, the stand is your meditation practice. So you'd like that stand to be as wide as possible so that the pot is harder and harder to tip over. The way that you make your stand as wide as possible is, of course, two to three meditation sessions a day, 30 minutes or more, using the different positions, don't get attached to just one, and moving your meditation practice around so that you're in different environments, and ensure that you're meditating with just the body, the mind, and the breath, that you don't need this special blanket all the time, you don't need these incense, these candles, this music, you know, if you're gonna do those things occasionally, okay, but 80 to 90% of the time, it should just be body, mind, and breath, just you by yourself. Okay, looks like we have a lot of questions on YouTube, actually. Uh, Trish has, Trisha has a couple of questions. The first one is, where does one do walking meditation? As I live in the city, should I do it in my living room or somewhere in the house? I'm not sure how practical that would be. Usually when you're first starting out, you start kind of in a controlled environment, like uh, temples are good places because they tend to have really big, large buildings or the temple grounds. So if we end up doing our future retreats at a temple in America, we can definitely go outside or we can use the building. Here in Thailand, when people come and learn with me, I usually do it inside the classroom. We have a really large classroom that we can do it right in there. But then after you get used to doing walking meditation in a controlled environment and you might decide to use your house or you know, a walking track or something like this, a gymnasium or something, then you'd like to take it out into an environment where there's some impermanence going on, quite a bit of impermanence, like starting out maybe at a park where there's a walking trail or a hiking trail or something. And then ultimately you'd like to build it up to the point where you can even walk down a sidewalk of a busy street and you can be just as focused with cars whizzing by, with horn honking, with maybe people yelling out the window, who knows what might happen in some communities or some cities. You can just be fixated on the ground and meditating and the mind can just be stable and steady, concentrated, mindful, able to cut off and let go of anything. So you kind of increase the stimulus or you increase the impermanence as you get more and more comfortable in each of these environments. But I suggest starting in a nice controlled environment to start. And if your living room is where you need to start, then start in your living room. Okay, thank you, Teacher David. Trisha also asks, as I mentioned before, I would like to learn more chants, but does chanting help better your meditation practice? 
I like to use chanting to improve the meditation practice. That's actually the only reason why I really do chanting is because it's improving the meditation and it's improving the quality of mind outside of meditation. So if you learn more chanting, you'll observe that you'll have more mindfulness, you'll have more concentration, you'll have better memory, you'll probably have a lot more respect for the teachings and going through and actually having this gratitude and respect for the elders. You'll end up getting more awareness of the breath, having to do more and more and more chants. Chanting isn't required in order to get to enlightenment. This is why you don't see on the Eightfold Path a step that says right chanting because chanting and things like that isn't required. It was only used during the lifetime of the Buddha in order to memorize his teachings. So if you'd like to learn more chanting, you surely can. And as you expand that chanting that you're doing, you'll just see some of those qualities continue to improve. But that's not a requirement. You can actually cultivate those same qualities in other ways as well. Thank you, Teacher David. I hope I'm pronouncing this right. Pepeco asks a couple of questions. His first one is, why only children that are less than six years old can remember past lives or forgot after six years old? I don't know if that's relevant for you or not, but I thought I would ask that. Yeah, on Wednesdays we can have any and all questions. So this actually isn't true that only people six years old and younger can remember past lives. Because remember, the Buddha was 29 to 35 when he got to enlightenment and he observed past lives. There's other people alive today that can observe past lives past the age of six. If it was only people that were under six, that would be permanence, which doesn't exist, right? We understand the universal truth of impermanence. Children oftentimes are observing their past lives early in life because they don't have as much craving, anger, and ignorance. Well, they actually have a lot of unknowing of true reality or ignorance, but there tends to not be as significant of craving and significant anger because their mind hasn't been conditioned as much in this life. So they tend to have less pollution early in life so they can observe past lives oftentimes kind of readily. And then as we age, we take on more and more pollution. Uh, we take on more and more conditioning as we age. So oftentimes as we age, it's more challenging for us to observe past lives. But then once you start learning and practicing these teachings and you clear out the pollution of mind, it's not uncommon for adults to observe past lives. You know, when I first started observing past lives, but I didn't know what that was, I was about eight years old. And then I had different periods throughout my life that I was observing these things, but I didn't necessarily know that's what that was. When I really truly knew what it was, I was about 44 years old when I observed past lives and I knew for 100% certainty that's what it was. So it's not true that only six and under can observe past lives. I'm not sure where you heard that from, but this isn't actually true. Thank you, Teacher David. Vico also asks, can we use blindfolds and earplugs to meditate? It's possible for you to do that, but the challenge is that these things become attachments, that what the mind is trying to do is get to that peacefulness and that quietness and using something artificial like a blindfold and earplugs that can be helpful as you get started, but the mind can get attached to that. What you would like to do is train the mind that no matter what kind of light or what kind of sounds are happening during meditation, that the mind isn't affected by it. So by blocking it out with a blindfold or earplugs isn't actually solving the problem. The problem is, is that the mind is disturbed by this disagreeable sound or this disagreeable light or what have you. 
or there's pleasant feelings. So by blocking it out with a blindfold or earplugs, while it may help you start getting some meditation that's a bit better, what you're going to observe is that then the mind's going to get attached to it and it's not able to eliminate its craving naturally and then be unaffected about whatever lighting or sound is going on. So that 80 to 90% of the time that I was mentioning that should just be the body, the mind, and the breath, be sure you're doing that 80 or 90% of the time, just body, mind, and breath. But then that extra 10 or 20% of the time, that's where you can do things like some people like to do gong meditations or use learning aids like what you're talking about. But be sure it's in that 10 or 20% range because the difficulty or challenge for you might be that the mind gets so attached to this that it's not really doing the real work to eliminate the craving for silence. That's why the mind wants the earplugs because it has a craving for silence. It's disturbed meditating when there's sound. So what you would like to do is 80 to 90% of the time have no earplugs so that you train the mind to get over that craving. Or if you're putting a blindfold on, the mind has a craving for certain lighting conditions. And by putting the blindfold on, you're not actually solving the craving, you're actually feeding it. So you would like 80 to 90% of the time to be no blindfold, no earplugs, so that you're training the mind to get over this craving and let it go, so that then you can train the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in any lighting conditions and in any conditions of sound. And it just takes time for that to occur. So that's why if you need the blindfold and earplugs, 10 or 20% of the time do that, but just be cautious that you're not allowing it to be any more than that, or else the mind's gonna get attached to it, and then you're not doing the real work to let go of the craving desire attachment. Thank you, Teacher David. And finally, um, Peko asks, what are, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, Sariras or Sariras, how is it created? I'm not familiar with that word. Maybe they can send me a private message or post it in the Facebook. It's S-A-R-I-R-A-S. Does that sound familiar to you? I'm not following it. It might be one of the beings in the animal realm or something like that. I'd have to see it written out. Okay. I think it has to do with Buddhist relics, uh, according to Wiki. Uh, it's a generic term referring to Buddhist relics, although in common usage it usually refers to a pearl or crystal-like bead-shaped objects that are reportedly found among the cremated ashes of Buddhist spiritual masters. Okay. So... I can comment generally on this, but what was the what was the question, uh, Rick? Now that I know what that is, the actual question was, "What are sariras and how is it created?" Oh, okay. So, did they answer their own question? I don't think so. No. Oh, you looked it up on Google. Is that what your? Yeah. That was the definition you gave me. Oh, okay. So these relics and things that occur. It's not something that you need to worry your mind about or even necessarily think about because when bodies are burned of enlightened beings, there is oftentimes things that are left behind that are not bones, that are not any kind of thing from the body, but these relics occur. So if that occurs, fine. If it doesn't occur, that's fine too. So it's not something that's going to lead to your enlightenment. Having these relics isn't going to produce enlightenment in your mind because the number one problem that's occurring in all unenlightened minds is the lack of wisdom or ignorance, the unknowing of true reality. 
There's no rites, rituals, ceremonies, worship. There's no material object that's going to give you wisdom. You have to cultivate the wisdom through learning, reflecting, and practicing the teachings. So if there's some relic that you come in contact with, at one point somebody gave me the relics of one of the students of the Buddha. It was thought to be bone material of Ananda, his closest student. And I had those for a while, and then I just let them go. You know, I didn't hold on to them. So these things aren't going to actually produce enlightenment in your mind. And it's best to just understand that these material objects are just material objects. What you're really looking to do is investigate the teachings so that you can learn, reflect, and practice, cultivate wisdom. And that's what's going to lead to your enlightenment. Teacher David, on Facebook, Tonka asks, any extra advice other than explained in the book how to embody and deeply understand the universal law of impermanence and make peace with it? So the best thing you can do is go around and just constantly observe impermanence everywhere in your environment, wherever you walk, wherever you go. If you get a phone call and then it gets disconnected, if you're on the internet and you get a break in your Wi-Fi, If you're in a Zoom class like this and we get somebody that comes in and tries to crash our class, that's just impermanence, right? All these things are impermanent. So just day after day after day when things are happening around you, you can just be like, ah, impermanence, ah, impermanence, ah, impermanence. Someone cut you off in traffic, ah, impermanence, right? You're putting on your shirt, your shirt rips, ah, impermanence. You know, all these different things that are happening, just see it as for what it is, which is impermanence. So this is what the buddha talks about he calls it developing the perception of impermanence so you need to develop or the way that i say it is you need to soak impermanence into the mind and by just seeing it repeatedly everywhere like you're watching tv and then the electric goes out ah impermanence you know all these different things it's just impermanence 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 happening all the time everywhere around you so just soak that in more and more and more and over a consistent long-term period of time the mind gets just used to it that this is the way it's going to be you know when you're at work and certain things are happening i'm sure based on your job and what i know about your job there's probably all kinds of impermanence that's happening at your work with different patients or clients or residents or whatever you guys call your people that you help, the clients, there's probably a a litany of impermanence that's happening on a daily basis. So just see that for what it is and just realize you're surrounded by impermanence. It's just, it's not going away. The only thing you can do is make your mind comfortable to understand that, yes, all these things are impermanent. Thank you, teacher David. Um, On Facebook, Chris asks, Is it better to meditate in well-lit environments? P.S. I have a bright light in my room and feel uncomfortable meditating without covering my eyes. Okay, so this is a common question about different topics, right? Like what's best to do this or what's best to do that? Or should I do it this way or should I do it that way? In reality, connected to the last question that we just had, you're interested in impermanence. You're interested and introducing impermanence into your meditation practice. And where you see your mind doesn't like something, you should do that more, right? Because if your mind is like, I don't like all this light, I don't wanna meditate with light, no, I don't like this, Ah," you know, irritated or annoyed, meditate with light, the brighter the better, and train the mind to be content 
and peaceful and joyful, no matter what the lighting condition is. Still meditate sometimes without light, right? So you're not interested in doing it just one way because the mind's going to crave something. It's going to crave, like in your case, wanting to do meditation with no light or minimal light, right? That's what the mind wants because that's the craving, desire, attachment that it has. So you do that sometimes, but you would like to meditate with lights on sometimes too because the mind does not want that. It isn't content with that. It isn't joyful with that. It maybe gets annoyed or irritated by that. So meditate in places where there's light and train the mind. You're not going to get what you want all the time. It's like a three-year-old child or a five-year-old child. You're training this mind that it's not going to get what it wants all the time. So the mind is trying to throw this temper tantrum like, give me darkness, give me darkness. Come on, daddy. Come on, mommy. Give me darkness. Give me darkness. And if you just keep giving it darkness, that's all it's ever going to want is darkness. And you got to be the adult in the room and be like, you know what? I realize you like darkness and this is something that you're interested in. But you know what? We're going to try something new today. We're going to meditate in the light. No, I don't want the light. I don't want the light. Well, we're going to do that. We're going to meditate in the light today. So let's meditate in the light. Okay, if you say so, right? And then just learn to meditate in the light so that this way the mind isn't fixed to any one particular thing. If you notice that the mind is always wanting to meditate in the seated position, you know, give me the seated position, give me the seated Okay, it's time to introduce the lying position or the standing position or the walking position. This is just like a three-year-old child saying, give me chocolate, give me chocolate, give me a lollipop, give me a lollipop. If you give it the lollipop, it gets these pleasant feelings. But now every time you go to the store, it wants a lollipop, it wants a lollipop or it wants chocolate. And then one day when you eventually say no, throw a temper tantrum, right? So what you do is you don't allow the mind to get attached to any lighting conditions or any particular sounds with a blindfold or earplugs or anything like this. You introduce all this impermanence and train the mind to be content and peaceful and joyful in any and all conditions. The more you can mix this kind of stuff up, the better. Thank you, teacher David. I don't see any more questions on YouTube or on Facebook. Thank you, sir. Um, I think that Jan has a question on Zoom. Let's go to her for her question, sir. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you, Teacher David. Um, your advice is very helpful, uh, especially the discussion that you just um, gave us. I have been trying to meditate in many different positions and um, locations. I'm very challenged by the lying position. Uh, I cannot stay awake mm -hmm. <laughs> I try to meditate in lying position um there's, there's a feeling of wanting to do it will you know will enthusiasm for um it, and over and over again I fall asleep <laughs> any additional advice I would appreciate it yeah if you've got meditation well established in the seated standing and or walking positions you should still do like you're doing, you know, meditate every once in a while in the lying position and just know that that's what happens is that you fall asleep when you meditate in the lying position and then use that to your advantage. If you've got your anchor points where you're meditating in seated stand and walking position and that's what you do as your kind of normal standard training. Well, then in those situations where you're having trouble falling asleep, perhaps 
then use the lying position to help you fall asleep. So this is like wisdom that you've learned about this body and this mind is that when you're in the lying position, it tends to fall asleep. Okay, you've got that wisdom on board. There's no need to kind of force yourself to stay awake and there's no you know award for that. So if you've got your seated, standing and walking well established, then you've got your training that you need and then just use your lying position whenever you need it either the body's sore or you're in a hospital, there's no other option, or you're having trouble falling asleep. So this is why I encourage students to learn what I teach, but then dabble with all of these positions and see what's working for you. What are the pros and cons of each position? And now that you've done this enough and you've gained this wisdom, that the lying position is good for you if you're having trouble falling asleep because you do fall asleep, now just use that to your advantage and keep that as wisdom. This is part of your tool belt that you now know about this body and this mind. If I could ask a follow-up question. Um, thank you, that's very helpful um, advice. There's a different quality to meditating in different environments. I've discovered um, the different challenges in the different environments. Um, for example, I have been meditating outside quite a bit and um, the mind is very aware of animals and th there's a squirrel that comes up and sometimes sits on me <laughs> which is <laughs> sort of a startling occurrence and it's a little distracting <laughs> mm -hmm. i imagine it's curious um but but different there are different um qualities in the different environments would you suggest it would be wise after meditation to spend some time um, pondering the, the different challenges to the mind in these different situations? Yeah, that can be helpful because if you're observing challenges, then you would like to go back into that environment until they're, they're not you know difficult or there's no struggle anymore. The mind, when it gets to enlightenment, it should be at ease all the time no matter where it's at. There should be no struggles, no difficulties. When something happens, it's like, ah, oh, someone broke into our Zoom session. Okay, how do we handle this? A little bit of impermanence? Okay, let's take care of that and move that on. Oh, uh, something showed up in the mail today? Oh, let's handle that. Oh, somebody showed up at the front door. Whatever it is, the mind should be at ease at all times. So if you're noticing any kind of like sticky points or any ickiness that the mind's having, you would like to put the mind in those situations in order for it to be trained that that's not sticky or icky anymore. There's no rough spots. So whether it's meditation or outside of meditation, say you have a coworker that the mind just despises going in this person's office. And anytime you go there, the mind just hates it. We'll use a strong word, right? Hates it. Well, you should go in that person's office occasionally and talk with them until the mind gets to a point where there's no rub whatsoever and you can just practice loving kindness and compassion there. So that's what you'd like to do is if you'd like to reflect on those things and observe those things you can, because that's just indication for you like, okay, I need to do that more. Or, oh, this used to be rough for me and now I've noticed the last three or four or five times it's just been really easy and my mind's been at ease. So I don't really need to do that anymore unless I'd like to, unless it's something that I would like to do. So that's that. I'll comment something on the squirrel too is 
one of the things you might notice is as the mind becomes more awake, there's more calmness, more peacefulness, more joy in the mind. Animals can actually read that. It's pretty amazing that animals will tend to gravitate towards people who are calm and peaceful and joyful and and centered and not disturbed internally. They can somehow sense this. So you might find that animals are more than comfortable to be around you as the mind awakens more. That makes sense. There are also many birds that that come and sit on the bench or Mm -hmm. I imagine they're just curious what my, Mm -hmm. my joke with my spouse is they're pondering whether we are food yet. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> she hasn't moved for a while. Can we eat her? <laughs> There's always this kind of like relationship between the Buddha and enlightenment and animals, right? Like the first miracle he performed is he called animals to come, right? Mm-hmm. And, and like they came, you know, they came from that miracle. And then there's this kind of like animal realm, which we all know that you know, there's these countless rebirths in the animal realm. So human beings have this affection for animals and animals seem to have an affection for us too, you know, to a certain degree. And if you go around to uh, temples here in Thailand, there's typically a lot of statues of animals everywhere to kind of remind us, you know, to not be reborn, don't be complacent, you know, don't be reborn back to the animal realm. And there's also a lot of live animals too, cats, dogs, chickens, birds, peacocks, things like this at different temples that are getting fed and taken care of and so forth. So there's always kind of this relationship between human beings and animals and particularly Buddhism and enlightenment. And what I observed is that, you know, on different occasions where there's an animal that is not really domesticated or, you know, maybe tame enough that it's around humans, but not domesticated enough that it's truly domesticated, that when a person who isn't really on the path and who's tends to be internally conflicted when they're around that animal the animal just really doesn't like it they're kind of disturbed and then when somebody's more peaceful more calm or settling they're the same way there's even stories in the buddhist community about how you know the buddha one time had an elephant charging at him and he just remained calm and peaceful and the elephant eventually just stopped its charge and stopped short So there's these kind of stories about this kind of stuff. And I've observed this for myself where people were internally conflicted and walked in front of this one animal and the animal got really disturbed. And then as another person who's more calm, more peaceful, more joyful, the animal is just completely at ease when that person walked by. So you'll see these kind of things occurring. Thank you for sharing that. That's wonderful. Mm. Yeah, you're welcome. And thank you for your guidance. You're welcome. Mm. Um, I see that Tony has his hand raised. Let's go to him for his question, sir. Yes, Teacher David. Uh, I'm just wondering, when practicing loving kindness, uh, uh, we have some some um, mantras or, that, that we, we are taught. That uh, Do we always use those, or is there other others that we should use? Or I'm just inquiring about that, sir. Thank you. Yeah, so I call these affirmations rather than a mantra. People have these mantras which are similar to chanting and they kind of do them repetitively. And some people think and believe that these things are going to produce wholesome benefits for them by chanting them. But that's not what the Buddha taught. So what we're doing in loving kindness meditation are affirmations. We're affirming in the mind, may I be peaceful, may I be safe, may I be 
well, may I be free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes. And then we're expanding to each ring. So these are the ones that I use. These are the ones that I found that work really well, but they can be customized. If you're going to choose to customize them rather than peaceful, safe, well, and free from discontentedness, what you would like to do is use those ending words and what I would describe as non-burdening words. So the peaceful, safe, well, free from discontentedness, those are non-burdening words. It's not burdening anybody to do something before we have loving kindness for them. Because remember, we're trying to transform our mind away from anger, hatred, or will to have loving kindness for these beings, that we're not expecting anything from them. We're not setting out conditions in order for us to cultivate our loving kindness. We're not trying to burden them with having to do something before we will be loving and kind with them. We're just having this genuine interest in seeing them be well, seeing them be safe, seeing them be peaceful and seeing them be free of discontentedness. So if we were to say, may all beings be kind, right? This requires them to do something or may all beings be polite or may all beings be respectful, right? This requires them to do something. And then it's only when they do those things that then, okay, now I'll have loving kindness for them. So if you're going to change those four phrases at all, just be sure you come up with things that are non-burdening. And if you're in doubt of whether what you've come up with is non-burdening, you can always ask a question in all the different ways that I open up for questions, you know, in a class, Facebook, private message, or a personal guidance session, because you're interested in having no judgment about other beings and you're just cultivating in your mind that you have this genuine interest in seeing all beings be peaceful, safe, well, and free of discontentedness and any other non-burdening words that you'd like to use. Thank you. We have uh, another question on YouTube from Papeko who asks, is it possible to cancel our bad karma by meditating? So the way that I think about it is not canceling bad karma or unwholesome karma. What you're doing is part of the entire path to enlightenment is you're extinguishing your unwholesome karma. And remember, gamma is cause and effect or action and results, the results of your decisions. It's not a black cloud. It's not punishment and rewards. It's not like this mystical, magical thing that you have to cancel out, right? It's that in the past, in this life and in previous lives, you haven't, and other people as well that are unenlightened and that are in this life, haven't eliminated craving haven't eliminated anger and haven't eliminated ignorance or the unknowing of true reality through craving anger and ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. That's what creates all unwholesome karma. Whenever there's a decision that you make that is based in craving, anger or ignorance, the unknowing of true reality, it's going to produce unwholesome karma or unwholesome results, the results of your decision. So what you're doing in meditation and all the other aspects of the path is you're transforming the mind away from craving anger and ignorance and you're uprooting that and you're bringing in the wholesome roots. So those unwholesome roots of craving anger and ignorance are being uprooted and then you're bringing in generosity, loving kindness and wisdom. All wholesome, wise decisions are going to be made through generosity, loving kindness and wisdom. That's what's going to allow you to create wholesome 
karma or wholesome results of your decisions. If your decisions are through generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom, it's going to produce wholesome results because it's not based in this selfish craving. It's not based in this ill will or this anger, this hatred. It's not based in this ignorance or a knowing of true reality. Instead, the mind is awake. It's practicing generosity, giving and sharing. It's practicing loving kindness, this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. It's practicing this wisdom of the Buddhist teachings because you know true reality. So the way that you eliminate all unwholesome gamma is through the Eightfold Path. It's the Eightfold Path that extinguishes all unwholesome karma. Meditation is one step on the Eightfold Path. And yes, that helps you to eliminate unwholesome karma, the unwholesome karma of not training your mind in this life and previous lives. So meditation is helping you to build singleness of mind, helping you to build awareness of mind, mindfulness, helping you to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. If you're doing loving kindness meditation, it's helping you to eliminate anger, hatred, and ill will and cultivate loving kindness. So breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness is for sure helping you to eliminate unwholesome karma. And the Buddha talks about these as being the highest forms of wholesome gamma that you could actually generate is practicing breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. However, if all you ever did was meditated, you wouldn't actually extinguish your unwholesome gamma because you might still have wrong view. You might still have wrong intention. You might still have wrong speech, wrong action, wrong livelihood, wrong effort, wrong mindfulness, and maybe wrong concentration if you're not practicing singleness of mind in daily life. So in order to extinguish all your unwholesome karma, you would need to practice all eight steps. That's what the Eightfold Path is doing, is working to extinguish all your unwholesome karma. Meditation is one important component of that, but it's not everything. So just be sure that you understand, yes, meditation is indeed eliminating unwholesome karma, but you need to practice all these other steps as well. So if you just meditated, and then you went outside and practiced wrong speech where you're talking, you know, rude and impolite and you were harsh and aggressive. It doesn't matter how much you meditate. You're not getting to enlightenment because your mind is not practicing something like right speech. In order to practice right speech, you need to have right view and right intention, right? So there's all these things that are needing to be fit together as part of the path to enlightenment. It's a comprehensive approach of putting together all these pieces of the Eightfold Path that is ultimately going to extinguish all your unwholesome karma, with meditation being one part of that. Thank you, Teacher David. On Facebook, Chris asks, number one, he has two questions. How is singleness of mind practiced in daily life? And the second one is, how to determine if I'm practicing it or not? So the first question, how is singleness of mind practiced in daily life? Okay, so you use meditation, specifically breathing mindfulness meditation, to cultivate right concentration and right mindfulness, right? We've been talking about that. So singleness of mind is being able to focus on a single object without having the mind bombarded with thoughts and trying to do multiple things and rapidly cycling the mind. So by you training in meditation to just focus on the breath, this is honing the mind to be comfortable and content and peaceful and joyful by just focusing on one thing, the breath. That's what you're training, right? That's what you're training in meditation. Then in daily life, 
what you would like to do is practice singleness of mind, where you're just doing one thing at a time. You're not trying to rapidly cycle, right? You're not talking on the phone, watching TV, and eating a sandwich. You're just talking on the phone, and that's it. Just talking on the phone, having the conversation. When it's done, it's done and it's over. Or if you're watching TV, you're just watching TV and just doing that. Or if you're eating, you're just eating and that's it. Just doing one thing at a time. The Buddha shares, if you're walking, you're walking. If you're talking, you're talking. If you're sitting, you're sitting, right? This is how he describes it. So you just do one thing at a time throughout your day. Your mind's going to want to do multiple things and put them back to back and rapidly cycle perhaps particularly if you've been taught to multitask. But the mind actually can't multitask. It can't do more than one thing at a time. What it does is it does one thing for two, three, four, five seconds, and then it rapidly switches to something else. One, two, three, four, five things, you know, or, or one thing for one, two, three, four, five seconds, and then another thing. It just rapidly cycles from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. It's the ignorance of the mind that the mind believes it's doing three things at one time but it actually isn't. It's just doing one thing at a time. It's just rapidly cycling. So what you're doing is you're training your mind to rapidly cycle. And it's the opposite of singleness of mind. And then we wonder, why can't I focus on anything? Why is my memory so bad? Why do I have such poor concentration? That's because the mind's being trained to rapidly cycle from thing to thing to thing. So in meditation and then outside of meditation, you would like to train the mind to just do one thing at a time and do that consistently. Wherever you see the mind is attempting to do more than one thing, you cut that off and let it go and come back to whatever it is that you're doing and just do that one thing. So that's how you practice singleness of mind. If you're in a conversation, you just have that conversation. Rather than thinking about what you're gonna do tomorrow or what you're gonna do at the end of this conversation, just have that conversation and that conversation only. That's how you practice singleness of mind. The way that you know that you're doing it is that you have mindfulness or awareness of mind. You pay attention to the mind, that you're only just doing one thing at a time. And wherever you see the mind would like to do something else, that's where you cut it off, let it go, and come back to whatever it is you're focusing on. Because in meditation, you're training that way. You're training the mind to be able to do that. So then you use that skill in daily life that when you're focused on a conversation and you see your mind going to what you're gonna have for dinner tonight, you cut that off and bring it back. Nope, not going to think about that. Okay, and now you're just focused on the conversation. So more and more, you just train the mind to do this. And eventually, it's not so much effort and such a struggle to get the mind to do this. As you're first starting to do it, the mind's that three-year-old child. It's throwing a temper tantrum. It doesn't want to just have one conversation. It doesn't want to just talk on the phone. It doesn't want to just eat. It wants to rapidly cycle from thing to thing to thing. And this is what it's been doing, perhaps, for a long period of time. So as you start trying to train this wild animal, the wild animal wants to run away. So as you train it more and more and more, this wild animal becomes more and more refined. And eventually, the mind is so well trained and it's in the middle that it's effortless and it just always stays in the middle. But for an extended period of time, you're going to have to apply or you're going to need to apply a lot of effort to be able to get the mind to do this. And then as it gets better and better trained in meditation and it gets better and better and trained outside of meditation, it will just naturally do this all the time that it'll only ever focus 
on one thing at a time and it won't go to something else. You won't lose your thought. You know, if you're in a conversation with somebody and you're talking and you lose your thoughts, this is because the mind's racing ahead. It can't just stay and focus on singleness of mind because it's rapidly cycling. It's not used to doing that. So where you see the mind doing that, cut it off and bring it back, just like what you're doing in meditation. Thank you, sir. Um, you may have already answered the follow-up question, but I'll read it just in case you have anything you'd like to add, and that is how to determine if I am practicing singleness of mind or not. Yeah, I answered that. That's where you have the mindfulness. That's where you're aware. And if you observe the mind leaving, then you cut it off and bring it back. And what you should notice is over a consistent long-term period of time by you doing meditation and doing this in daily life, that there's more and more tendency for the mind to just stay very focused and in the present moment. And it becomes less and less effort for you to have to get the mind to have singleness of mind because it just naturally does it because you've trained it so well and it performs optimally and it just stays in the groove practicing singleness of mind all the time and that's what you build up to so you'll see as you're training this way you'll see for a few hours or a few days that the mind will just be practicing this effortlessly but then it'll get bombarded with thoughts or you'll have multiple thoughts or whatever and then you just get back on the horse you just keep training it and then over time you get to the point where the mind's just always focused there's no more effort to do it because you've already put in all that work you've already put in all that effort that's why an enlightened being's life is just so peaceful and so joyful it's effortless to practice these teachings once you've got the mind to the point where it's enlightened the mind will never revert back to being unenlightened ever again because it's been so well trained that it'll just always practice these teachings and it'll be effortless because the wisdom is too deeply soaked into the mind. All the craving, anger, and ignorance is gone. You're just always practicing generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom effortlessly. Thank you, Teacher David. It looks like we don't have any more questions at this time. Okay, anything from you, Miranda? Um, no, sir. There are no questions on Zoom either, sir. All right. Well, I'll just say thank you all for joining for today's class thank you to the moderators and thank you for all the questions that you guys are asking this shows that you guys are really practicing you're really learning you're reflecting you're practicing you're coming up with these questions that are really helping to improve your practice so hats off to all of you guys that are deeply learning and really investigating the teachings and then applying them so that you can learn how to train the mind and get to this enlightened mental state. So thank you all for your dedication and diligence to learning and practicing. In our future classes this Sunday, we're going to be in the group learning program, chapter 18, which is titled God's Creative Action. You have free will. This is where I'm going to help you understand how to either have a relationship with God and still get to enlightenment or not have a relationship with God and get to enlightenment. The Buddha never put God as a central focus in his teachings, but he did teach about God because people at that lifetime believed in God. They actually believed in multiple gods. So he actually did teach about God. And what I'm going to share with you is going to help you understand how you can either have a relationship with God or not and still get to enlightenment. Because depending on what you've learned in the past, there's probably certain conditioning or certain unknowing of true reality about this being of God that can hinder you from getting to enlightenment if you don't understand 
this being of God. So if you have hatred or anger towards God, for example, you're not going to be able to get to enlightenment. So you need to learn various things. If you have fear towards God, or if you think God's going to grant you wishes, or if you think God is the one who's deciding who dies or who lives, if you think that God's the one who's controlling activity here on earth, these things are going to hinder you from getting to enlightenment. So we're going to walk through this and help you understand it. So if you read chapter 18, either before class and or after, this will really help you because in there I go detail by detail and help you understand this being of God. And then again, you have the option to either have a relationship or not. It's up to you. So I'll help you guys with that on Sunday. And then next Wednesday, we'll be doing loving kindness meditation together as a group. So you're welcome to join for that. And then of course, on Saturdays, we have the Pali Canon and English study group, and we're in volume 11 now. So you're welcome to join that at any point. So I'll see you guys in a future class. Have a very wonderful and lovely rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.